Beyond the Mask is made possible by the team at CRNA Financial Planning. With almost two decades of experience, the firm guides CRNAs through the complexities of investing and financial planning. Schedule a free consultation today by calling 855-304-3748 or go online to crnafinancialplanning.com. Now, on with the show. Welcome to Beyond the Mask, innovation and opportunities for CRNAs with Jeremy Stanley and Sharon Pierce. We know you spend your day caring for your patient's best interests. On our show, we want to care for you. Join us as we leave the operating room and learn the latest in the CRNA industry. Beyond the Mask starts in 10, 9, 8, 7, Welcome to Beyond the Mask. I'm Jeremy Stanley, and I've been working with CRNAs for over 23 years, and I'm married to one. And my co-host is... Sharon Pierce. Sharon's a practicing CRNA for over 20 years, a past president of the ANA, the NCANA, and she's held many other leadership roles. As usual, our goal with every episode is to educate and enlighten CRNAs, and I think our topic today is definitely going to do that. And Sharon, what time is it? It's time to wake up, Jeremy. I think it is. Well, good afternoon, Sharon. How are you doing, Jeremy? I'm good. I'm good. How's the bedroom there? (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, I read an article recently and they were talking about a couple of different things about all these Zoom meetings. Number one, you get to see how people live. Yeah. You know, because you're looking into their bedrooms, their living rooms, that kind of thing. But one of the things they were talking about about school children and having to Zoom, one of the sad things is some kids didn't want to do it because they didn't want people to see how they live. Isn't that sad? It is sad. Yeah. It is. Well, you can see where I live. The bad, the ugly. You can see where I live. Yeah. You're in the office. Well, you're back. Yeah. You're back (laughs) in the office. But you you did quite a bit of taping from your home. Yeah. Yeah, I did. But uh, we're trying with to your son coming in <laughs> while we were taping. We're trying to get back at it again here. So, but um, well, we have a special guest in the studio with us today. We have Miss Sandy Ouellette. Welcome, Sandy. Well, thank you very much. It's always good to be back with you guys. Yeah, it's always good to have you. And Sandy's actually in the studio with me, but we are social distancing. We're far enough apart. We have microphones and a screen in between us, so. I think we're good, Sandy. I feel very comfortable. (laughs) And then I'm the lone wolf out here in Garner. (laughs) All by myself. Did you work today? In my bedroom. I did not work today. I worked yesterday in Wilmington, which is two hours away. So I drove four hours yesterday and worked nine in the middle of that. So Sounds fun. I about had to be off today. I'm too old to work like that anymore. (laughs) Well, we have, I think, a really good topic today. Oh, this is a great topic and always timely. And there's just so much confusion around this issue that Sandy will definitely clear it up. And this is a fabulous topic, especially for the majority of our listeners since they 70% of them are between 23 and 34 years of age this is very applicable to them yeah so we won't keep our audience in suspense anymore we're going to be talking about supervision and direction and really the history and relevance for today's CRNAs and the topic of supervision and direction it really never goes away as I've learned throughout my brief career in working with uh, nurse anesthetists for 20-some years now. And a lot, as you mentioned, Sharon, a lot of the younger folks probably might view this as more of a new issue than it really is. And Sandy's going to tell us today why it is not a new issue. And for those of you who don't know Sandy, which I can't imagine many people out there don't know who Sandy is, but... You'd be surprised. Well, they've been under 
<laughs> They've been under a rock if That's they right. don't know. That's right. Well, you know, Sandy is a, a former president of AANA and IFNA, the International Federation of Nurse Anesthetists. And good gracious, Sandy, you have so many accolades in this industry. I think we could probably go on for 20, 25 minutes telling everybody about you. But anything else you want to add? Well, to I your- would just say, you know, I'm very interested in the historical segment because I have lived the history, I feel. Mm. Everything yep. except I never knew Agatha Hodgins, but most everything else was a part of my life. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, you knew Helen Lamb, though. I did know Helen Lamb, yeah. She was a fabulous person. The mother of nurse anesthesia education. They'll have to go back and listen to that podcast because it was a great one. But let's go ahead and jump into this topic. And Sandy, why don't you tell us why this topic is so important to us in the year 2020? Well, I think I was stimulated to develop this topic in January when I was uh, with the seniors at Wake Forest University with a history presentation. And They invited me to come back at what they have they call Lunch and Learn, and they really wanted to know more about just one segment, supervision and direction. And in this history segment, I realized that they probably need some clarification there because they were saying things like the ASA says, supporting what they say. How can a surgeon who knows nothing about anesthesia supervise, quote, a CRNA? And so it all started there. But while the topic is important, today everything just uh, revolves around cost, quality, and access in healthcare today and in the future. And as we know, the United States spends more than any other country on healthcare, or about 17% of the GNP. And I think, Jeremy, you would agree that's huge, right? Yeah, massive. You know, one thing. And what makes it worse is policymakers are swayed easily by special interest groups that create regulations and standards where they have no evidence or scientific evidence to show that it improves quality or lowers cost. And if you go back to some of the problems that got us to where we are today, it was congressional intervention to make things better, which really made things worse. As we know, Anesthesia departments and nurse anesthetists and anesthesiologists bill for cases they do. There's a lot of downtime, but there has to be 24-7 coverage of these departments. So it's common that groups or departments are paid a stipend or a subsidy for this particular time. And it's just shocking that this has increased 400% since the year 2000, again, with, with no improvement in quality. Hmm. So cost is a big issue. But more than that, though, and this is what I wanted the students to understand, this supervision and direction that has been with us since the very beginning, since ANA was formed, is used often as a lethal weapon against nurse anesthesia practice and used in one way or the other to restrict practice. So that's why it's important for people to be up to date on this and understand where it began and where we are today. Well, Sandy, why don't we talk a little bit about, you know, kind of the concept of supervision and when it began. Okay, well, you know, some other podcasts that we did in the historical segment really showed that a lot happened between 1917 and 1936. In the very beginning, when people began to specialize in anesthesia, it was nurses. Prior to that, it was what I call the trio, nuns, nurses, and students, and no one really was a specialist in it. But as nurses began to really become involved and got very good at it, they received challenges. And one of the challenges was Frank versus Scythe that was settled in 1917, and the other, Dagmar Nelson, which was settled in 1936. And during this time, we noted that states adopted statutes that recognized the practice of anesthesia by nurses as a nursing service provided in the direct presence of a surgeon. So it was the direct presence of a surgeon. And, you know, why else wouldn't it be in a direct presence of a surgeon or an obstetrician? People just don't drop in for an anesthetic. You know, if they're having an anesthetic, then they're having a procedure done. Now, the word supervision 
never in my mind adequately defined the relationship between surgeons and anesthesia professionals. And as I said a minute ago, this later became a real battlefield for some special interest groups. The other thing that really intrigues me, if you look at a standard definition of supervision and direction, supervision appears to be more important in controlling than direction. But as far as reimbursement, that is not the case. If you look at supervision, it's defined as the action or process or occupation of supervising, critical watching and directing as of activities or course of action. But when you look at direction, it is guidance or supervision of actions or conduct. It's more guidance and assistance in pointing out the proper right of action. So again, medical direction today as we know it, the ACT ACT model, the anesthesia care team model, the one to four ratio, seems much more confining and restrictive than supervision, which is just the opposite. Now, looking at the evolution a little bit further, in the 1960s and 1970s, Congress decided that we did not have enough physicians. And so they poured a lot of money into medical education to increase the number of physicians. So by the 1980s, there had been a huge surplus of physicians, including anesthesiologists. And so the nurse anesthetists in the beginning had a ratio of about one nurse anesthetist or 17 nurse anesthetists to one anesthesiologist. By the end of the Wait just a minute. Wait, wait, wait. I want you to say that one more time, Sandy. In the very beginning. 17 to 1? Uh-huh. Way back when we were the Dagmar Nelsons and, you know, on into the 60s and 70s. But by the 80s, this had changed to 1 to 1.5 nurse anesthetists for every one anesthesiologist. You know, half the anesthesiologists that were ever produced were produced in the 1980s. So this became an area in which medical direction began to get a foothold. Well, why did that happen? Well, the HICFA, which is the Healthcare Financing Administration, realized in the early 1980s that physicians who could be billing under Part B could bill for 100% of all the cases in an operating room for that day or forever. And uh, many times, if not always, it was the CRNAs that were actually doing the case. And sometimes these anesthesiologists weren't in the OR, they weren't in town, they weren't in the country, but they could still bill in the early 1980s. So that brought us the infamous... TEFRA regulations. Sounds like it was definitely needed, Sandy. (laughs) Yeah, but it didn't turn out too good, really. So in 1982, the TEFRA regulations that applied to the medical direction model was created, which included the seven conditions of payment. And um, as I've said many times, that really was a blow to nurse anesthetists and their practice, but particularly in training nurse anesthetists, because we've, since 1982, educated generations of nurse anesthetists under this uh, medical model and some of them have a hard time believing that you can work without supervision of an anesthesiologist but the important thing to be made under medical direction or supervision it was never a quality of care issue and that was so stated by the healthcare finance administration however the crna enemies turned it into a quality of care issue and it became very effective as a marketing tool. They were able to sell to both hospitals as well as surgeons. The surgeons, their liability that they said they acquired if they worked with nurse anesthetists without an anesthesiologist, and with hospitals, the quality of care in their hospital without an anesthesiologist. So this was the medical direction in that model. The seven conditions of payment that came about in 1982 with TEFRA. Now, the other is supervision, and supervision is a little bit different. It's a general activity concerned with monitoring the performance of CRNAs with really diminished direct involvement of anesthesiologists in the delivery of service to the patient. Reimbursements for supervision 
is less than the one-to-four ratio for medical direction. It's about 50% from what I read of that paid uh, for direction. But again, I'm not an expert on that, but I do know it's less. The thing that is critically important here is HICFA did not demand that a CRNA have to be supervised by an anesthesiologist, only that those conditions be met for reimbursement. HICFA made it very clear these conditions were not to be construed as quality of care criteria, but yet the hospital administrators in many cases, as well as surgeons, were taught that your liability is greater if you do not have an anesthesiologist. That was called the Anesthesiologist Employment Security Act, I like to call it. And they were very successful at it, really. Very, very successful at it. Well, they've managed to, to me, this issue can be very confusing because it's all about reimbursement. That's correct. It's not about quality of care. And whenever I ask if you want to be supervised, in my mind, that is a more offensive term. And I would suspect that it's a more offensive term to a large amount of our listeners But if you say you're medically directed, somehow that doesn't really, I don't know, in the South, we call it stick in your crawl uh, so much. (laughs) But you make more money. The anesthesiologist makes more money doing medical direction than supervision, even though supervision, the term itself, is offensive in some ways. So the whole issue can become really muddied and then you throw in there how much more they wanted to muddy it by making it a quality of care issue yes i think therein lies a reason why it's absolutely so confusing well they had produced uh, all these anesthesiologists and in fact in the mid-90s it became evident through their announcements that they had fifteen thousand too many anesthesiologists that was in 1996 And that's when they saw a 30% decrease in applicants to their residency training programs. And even with foreign medical graduates, they couldn't fill all the numbers. And remember, that was a time they were also trying to chase nurse anesthetists out of the market as punishment for direct reimbursement that we received in uh, Mm -hmm. 1986. So the stars were aligning. It was sort of a battle there, but in the end, it worked out in our favor because it created a huge shortage of CRNAs, and that worked very good. Well, they've continually weaponized this concept, just like you alluded to earlier. But Let's talk a little bit about the AANA position statement on supervision versus direction that came out in about 1987, Sandy. Yeah, that was uh, the year I was uh, president-elect and president of the ANA that that came out. But, you know, preceding that, as I just said, was in 1986. And that's when we successfully legislated direct reimbursement under Part B Medicare. And it was during the 87, 88, 89 years that we were fighting with the regulators. That would be CMS now. It was the Healthcare Financing Administration then as to parity in reimbursement or an equitable reimbursement. So that was an important time. And so the ANA then issued a position statement on supervision versus direction. And We recognize that the terms were used interchangeably in Nurse Practice Acts, and these terms were often not defined and were left to the interpretation and context of the practice reality. The other thing that we really noted is that supervision versus direction are so general, they describe the relationship between a CRNA and other healthcare professional with whom the CRNA really works in a collaborative role. To me, the word collaboration tells it all. To me, it's the operating room team. It's not the anesthesia team. We work in groups of highly skilled, highly educated individuals, not just the surgeon, not just the anesthesia professional, but nurses and other people that keep that patient safe, and we work in collaboration. It really differs, too, in terms of practice settings, And it really should take in the education, clinical skills, and capabilities of the CRNA. Well, what gives us the right to administer anesthesia or to practice? 
the position statement said we do it with consent of another healthcare professional. And consent is nothing more than an agreement mm-hmm. by that surgeon or that obstetrician or whoever the person might be that says we want to do this procedure and this, this is what we need to do it. It was recognized and very important, I think, by the ANA that the supervising health care providers are not liable for the CRNA negligence merely because they are exercising a statutory requirement for supervision. They only become liable when they control the activities Mm. of the provider, and that is critically important. There have been surgeons that have been liable when they were working with anesthesiologists and surgeons that were not liable when they were working with nurse anesthetists Mm. and vice versa. The issue is control. Do they control what you do? And uh, Nurse Practice Acts, we have to remember, do not require a supervisor to exert control. So for these people that might think if they are working on an act model and they're protected because they're working with an anesthesiologist, that does not mean that you will not stand alone in a a legal mishap if it came uh, to legal action. So it's important the control issue is something we should not forget. The two C's, I say, collaboration and control. Well, that brings us to another point. My understanding is that physicians view prescription as the practice of medicine. And how does prescriptive authority for nurses fit into this discussion, Sandy? Well, that's another thing that we follow for a long, long time. And, and in some states, you know, today, CRNAs do have a prescriptive authority, but many they do not. And so in the absence of prescriptive authority for nursinestis, only the physician is allowed to prescribe medications. And so the practice of medicine is pretty much defined as diagnosis, treatment, and prescription of medications. So APRNs must work under the supervision of physician or a dentist when they perform medical acts. Mm-hmm. But there's really no definition of all the things that might include a medical act. But one of the things for us is we are not delegated medicine because from the very beginning in 1917, the administration of anesthesia was recognized as a legitimate function of nursing when administered by a nurse. So the position of the ANA is the administration of anesthesia is not the practice of medicine. It should not be surprising to you that the position of the ASA, or the American Society of Anesthesiologists, is this administration of anesthesia is a medical act. And that has been the real bugaboo. That has been the real fight. And you have to remember, AANA was formed in 1931. The ASA was formed in 1936. In 1937, the ASNA came out with their master plan to eliminate nursinestis or failing to eliminate nursinestis, how will they control nursinestis? Mm-hmm. And so all of this feeds into itself from 1931, 1936 on to the day. So when the CRNA is ministering anesthesia, and this is a real important point, he or she is not prescribing the anesthesia, is she? Or is he? No, they aren't. The CRNA is carrying out the order of the prescribing physician. And more recently, that's become important as some of these ketamine clinics have begun to develop for the treatment of depression and post-traumatic stress disorder and, and pain and these types of things. And some of the boards of nursing got a little nervous because they were saying nurse anesthetists can't develop these clinics because they can't prescribe. Well, they're not prescribing. It is the psychiatrist who's prescribing the subtherapeutic doses of ketamine, and the nurse anesthetist is administering it. And really, we all know that the safety of anesthesia lies not so much in the provider or technique used, but with the vigilance of the user. And so it's not how much supervision, how much direction, how much control here or there. It's vigilance. You have very good nurse anesthetists and very good anesthesiologists that sometimes stumble and fall and have an anesthetic mishaps because of a temporary loss in vigilance. Sandy, you bring up a good point about 
diagnosis and they seem to hang their hat on that and that physicians diagnose all the time and that goes back to the cure versus care model nurses care physicians cure and to cure you've got to have a diagnosis and that's where some of the rub comes in but you had told me long time ago whenever I was in school that there is no diagnosis to provide anesthesia because the diagnosis comes from the surgeon who diagnoses cholelithiasis necessitating uh, cholecystectomy. It is the operating surgeon. So really anesthesiologists don't even make a medical diagnosis because we facilitate a cure with anesthesia and therein lies some of the difference but whenever they split hairs it seems to split in their way not, well not true. towards you our know, way you know if you look at nursing versus medicine nursing is care and medicine is cure and that involves in the diagnosis the treatment prescription and those types of things However, we know today, you know, we're getting more and more into nursing diagnosis. So there is nursing diagnosis. There is Mm -hmm. medical diagnosis. But you're right, Sharon, in that, you know, in very few cases, anesthesia doesn't cure anybody. Mm -hmm. It cares for patients during a time that they're having procedures that hopefully will cure them if the right diagnosis has been medically made and the right treatment is being performed. But anesthesia itself, unless you're talking about, and even that, you know, uh, epidural steroids and all may not cure. It sort of alleviates pain for a period of time. But we're in a very uh, gray area. And you've heard me say before, when we talk about is the administration of anesthesia the practice of nursing or medicine, I think it's one foot in both. It's an overlapping circle between the two. And we're somewhere in the gray area. That's not only for nurse anesthetists, but it's also for anesthesiologists. Is it more nursing or is it more medicine? And we've argued that my whole career, which is getting way too long to even think. (laughs) As I just had my birthday, by the way, last Friday. Mm -hmm. Well, happy birthday. Thank you. You are most welcome. Well, let's go back. I want you to go over this again for our audience, especially our young audience. So when surgeons and others work with nurse anesthetists without an anesthesiologist, they've been told that they're liable for the acts of the nurse anesthetist. Talk to me about that. Yeah, I mean, that was a marketing strategy to try to get everyone working under the direct medical direction of an anesthesiologist. The surgeons, if they were uncomfortable working with nurse anesthetists without anesthesiologists, they got an anesthesiologist. It was an employment maneuver for them, and it was very successful. But really, it had nothing to do with the safety of anesthetics, so to speak. It was more reimbursement, as we talked about then. They went so far, Sharon, in terms of medical malpractice insurance, in some cases, to tell surgeons they would have to pay a premium, an extra premium, if they work with a nurse anesthetist not supervised by an anesthesiologist. The whole thing was to control CRNAs and get them into the fold because they do believe that every anesthetic should be administered by a physician anesthesiologist. If that is not the case, Every anesthetic, everyone, Sharon, should be directed by an anesthesiologist. So they've got to get into the hospitals. They've got to get into the surgeon's head. They've got to get into the insurance companies in order to make headway on the plan, which, by the way, came out in about 1939. Well, they've been pretty focused on that plan. You have to give it to them. They've never never taken their eye off that gold. We could learn from that, to be sure. Well, Sandy, you know, I mean, do surgeons, do they know anything about giving anesthesia? I mean, is there a, or are they trained in that area? And if they, if not, how would they be a supervisor? Okay, um, let's talk about a couple of things here. The thing that we used to talk about that would make the surgeon liable comes under the legal doctrine of vicarious liability. And that means, that implies, it's a legal theory implying liability upon one person for the actions of another. And some words that we've all heard related to that is respondent superior, or let the master respond, or a borrowed servant doctrine, which makes one individual, the master, 
liable for the negligence of another, which would be the surgeon. But again, it's only if they control the action in these legal doctrines. Now, the other thing that really took a nosedive way back in many decades ago was the captain of the ship doctrine. At one time, that surgeon, he was uno number one. He was a captain of the ship. He was responsible for everything that happened and everybody in what they were doing in his operating room. But as procedures became more complex, as anesthetic drugs became more complex, as they understood that they aren't employing the nurse anesthetists, they are just using the services of the hospital facility or the group, then that died a good while ago. Sandy, I would also imagine as they got those malpractice insurance premiums when they were captain of the ship and oversaw everything i imagine that had some bearing in them not wanting to be captain you're of the probably ship right i've never seen that in writing but it's <laughs> probably right but one thing i do know in a recent article that was published in 2017 and i doubt that it's changed there's not a case where a surgeon was held liable for the crna based on the surgeon having supervised a crna to meet medicare reimbursement regulations hmm. and um For those that want to know more about this subject, there are two books that can be found in the AINA bookstore. One is by Gene Blumenreich, our legal counsel for 26 years, now retired. The name of that book is Let the Record Show. And the other book that has a lot about this, too, is the writings and wisdom from the legendary nursing leader, Ira Gunn, and we're going to do a podcast on her in the very near future. But that was published in 2015, and a lot of this that I'm talking about, you can find a lot of answers and very good reading there. So getting back to what you asked, Jeremy, who may be the supervisor? And should the supervisor be equally skilled at the task as the supervisee? The anesthesiologist would say definitely yes. How can a surgeon supervise a nurse anesthetist administering anesthesia? But CRNAs and APRNs would say no. In reality, I think about it, a nursing director or supervisor, think about it, is responsible for overseeing nursing services in the whole facility. But that person can't perform all the tasks each specialty nurse can perform. And in fact, they probably can't perform many of them if you're looking at a director of nursing. Wouldn't you agree, Sharon? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And so a director of an orchestra, for example, may be able to play each instrument, uh, may not be able to play it with the same skill as others, but they can perform a function because they know what the end result will be. So there's nothing that requires a supervisor, particularly if it's for a reimbursement issue, They have the same skills as those that they are supervising. And um, there was an old, old article written, I guess, back in the 80s. Current reviews for nurse nest is hard to believe that it's been around as long as it has and is still going strong. I just submitted a paper for that on end-stage renal disease. But um, it was on these very issues, and I got some of those thoughts from that particular article. It escapes me right now who wrote it, but it was really, really good on supervision versus direction. And it was entitled, I think, The Bane of the Nurse Anesthetist. We'll have to look that up for sure. But, you know, this has been an ongoing issue all the way through your career. It's been an ongoing issue all the way through my career, which is closing in on 30 years itself. You, you baby. Know, I know that <laughs> <laughs> you know I know that things are changing and one reason I think is because finally the patriarchy is tumbling just a little bit. I know you hate that, don't you Jeremy? Yeah. But where, where are we today with this issue of supervision and direction? Well, I think things began to change a lot when we legislated direct reimbursement in 1986 under the Omnibus Budget Reconciliation Act. And that was in the late 80s, of course. And so we had direct reimbursement, the first nurse anesthesia group to obtain that under Part B Medicare, were nurse anesthetists. In the 1990s, an investigation by the Government Accounting Office revealed anesthesiologists medically directing CRNAs were reimbursed 
120 to 140% more than an anesthesiologist or CRNA working alone. And so again, they began to look at where all the dollars are going. And so this same body, the GAO, decided it was reasonable to have one equivalent payment for anesthesia service, regardless of the service was provided by a CRNA or an anesthesiologist. So it doesn't matter if you've got five people providing that service or one person providing the service. It is one payment for the service. So that brought in the billing and reimbursement. If an anesthesiologist did the case himself, 100%, of course, reimbursement. If a CRNA did it by themselves, 100%. If it was medical direction, CRNA, MDA split 50-50, and medical supervision was a lesser fee, but there was not as many anesthesiologists particularly involved in that. So this TEFRA created some problems that people did not think about. And I told you one, it's the way we train our students in large hospitals and what they can graduate thinking. But the other thing that it did is anesthesiologists successfully negotiated agreements with uh, hospitals and limited CRNA practice. If you try to meet the medical direction model of care, it is very difficult and it lapses in conditions of payment about 90% of the time. Wow. Uh, so, you know, the medical direction and that model... that was a study with the own, the anesthesiologist published in their that own you're, journal. You're absolutely wow. right. So, you know, anesthesiologists successfully negotiated agreements with hospitals for the medical direction, the ACT model, and somewhat limiting CRNA practice, but in a one-to-four ratio... You know, they can't do it about 90% of the time. So if regulations are followed and they have to stop and not start cases except one by one, then money's going to be lost because of delayed procedural starts. And people have actually figured that up. And it's not a small amount of money that's being lost. And then the other thing for them, their documentation has to correspond with billing data to avoid billing fraud. Because they can be audited, and when they do, they better make sure that their books are correct. For that reason, some hospitals are now using what they call a QZ modifier. And again, I'm not an expert on billing. I leave that to many of my other colleagues. But what it does is it eliminates those seven conditions of payment. Mm. So it's more of a supervision model. So the money is less, but you don't have those second issues of payment and you're not subject to fraud should you not be meeting those payments. And so um, that seems to be a growing thing in some of the hospitals where I talk to some of my colleagues still working. And I hope it continues to grow because, you know, as a trainee and a young graduate at a major academic medical center where I spent most of my, all of my life really at Wake Forest University, There were a few nurse anesthetists, a few students, but even fewer anesthesiologists. They were used as consultants in some of these big, complex cases. They were there if we needed them, but pretty much we did our own cases and only called them if consultation was needed. And, you know, in all reality, everybody needs somebody sometimes. Everybody needs a second pair of hands sometimes. Everybody needs someone to give them a second opinion when they maybe have overlooked something because they've just been too close and looked at it so long. I mean, it may be two nurse anesthetists, it may be two anesthesiologists, it may be a nurse anesthetist and an anesthesiologist, but none of us are invincible. You know, we all can fall and make mistakes. Sandy, do you think that the stars might be aligning here for CRNAs? I think so. As I've said in some other podcasts, and I believe Sharon agrees, you know, this is the best time to be a CRNA. In my whole 51 or 52 years, if we don't mess it up. And what do I mean by if we don't mess it up? As long as our internal house is in order, and we are united, and we are engaged we can address any of the issues that are thrown at us. History has more than once shown that. So the CRNA practice, 
you know, the ACT model is one of the most expensive models for practice. And CRNAs are much less costly to educate, even at the doctoral level, which is, you know, Sharon, you may disagree with that now, <laughs> in finishing paying that tuition. But anyway, anesthesiologists, six times as much to train, and they're paid twice as much as a CRNA. And there's been study after study after study, no difference in outcome based on the provider. And one of the best studies we had, of course, was when the stars aligned in 2010, and that great, great journal, uh, Health Affairs, published No Harm Found. So by then, we had enough opt-out states that they could compare outcomes in supervised nurse and non-supervised nurse anesthetists. And they found absolutely no difference in outcome based upon provider. And that's been pretty much the case throughout. So, Well, Sandy, yeah. let me ask you a question. You know, we are right in the middle of this COVID pandemic, and a lot of things have happened. What, 12 states have issued executive orders getting rid of supervision of nurse anesthetists. We've had CMS get rid of physician supervision within the Medicare rules. So do you think that COVID is going to uncover some of these things that you have spent your lifetime and career to try and point out to policymakers and those kind of people? Are they going to finally see the low-hanging fruit now? Well, I would certainly hope so, Sharon. The CMS, as we know, temporarily suspended physician supervision that will be to the end of this emergency declaration, from what I understand. So what is given can also be taken away. And that's why we've been so tuned to, I think, letter writing with VAs and doing all this stuff to protect this. But I think there's another message that you didn't mention. COVID has become very expensive for the U.S. economy. You know, Mm. the national deficit is going up by leaps and bounds. Am I correct, Mm -hmm. Jeremy? You are. Two trillion, three trillion. The Congress is contemplating, in fact, the House passed another bill for $3 trillion, whether it'll pass the Senate or whether it'll be vetoed by the president, we don't know. But whatever, that's a lot of money money. that somebody's going to have to pay back. And it's a lot of money that's going to have to be recouped somewhere. And all this information, some of which I provided you, is we are the cost-efficient provider. Mm -hmm. And so I'm hoping that as we move forward, people will see that. I think that the collaborative model is what I would like to see in my lifetime, where everybody works as a team, bringing their skills and knowledge to the table, and we, we don't even talk about supervision or direction anymore. In order for us to be where we need to be, I think that we're going to have to continue to have quality education and clinical practice. And we have to remember, we got as far as we did because our surgeon colleagues trusted us. They bonded to us. In many cases, Sharon, you know, in some of our legislative actions, they still do. Oh, yes. So, so they, we, they do. Dr. Pat, my Dr. Pat that I gave anesthesia for for 20 years, whenever we were having our battles in North Carolina, he went to Raleigh. That's true. And, you know, we would have never, ever come this far without that support from the surgeons. So we need to never forget that and provide the service when they want it as they want it done. And we've got to pay more attention to cost and access And then the most important thing, I believe, is we as nurse anesthetists or nurse anesthesiologists, whatever you want to call yourself, have to make ourselves indispensable in the facilities in which we work. We have got to be there with a smile on our face. We have got to work harder. We have got to have the trust of our surgeons and others. And we want to be the person that everybody's happy to see. And I think that will go a long way in helping us as well as the data that we collect. We've got more information now than we ever had just with these opt-out states because we know there's no difference in outcomes based upon provider in those that are supervised and those that are not. 
And we know from the economic study that came out at the same time, that economic study really pointed out the difference in terms of our reimbursement and our educational dollars. And as I told the students many times, even though you're paying 100000 a day as you graduate with your DNP, it is still a gift. You know, you don't think it's a gift right now, but it is going to be a gift. Yeah. Because return on investment over a lifetime cannot be beat in any other profession that I'm aware of. I wish I could get to Yale and tell them 100,000 <laughs> for three years. You can tell them they all you missed, want. <laughs> they missed that message. <laughs> well, you know, you know, Sandy, just sitting there listening to you, and I'm just thinking about these states that have temporarily opted out. And it, in my mind, well, gosh, at a time that we're needed the most out there from a healthcare worker standard, to allow you CRNAs who have to have doctors to watch over you, you're going to kill people, to do this at such a point with COVID patients who are having respiratory problems and you don't have that doctor standing there watching over you to make sure you're not killing these poor people. I mean, it's amazing to me that they would temporarily allow you to operate like that at the almost worst time. It sounds to me almost like what CRNAs do out on the battlefield. It is. It's very there's similar. no MD around, and they take care of our young men and young women who are getting hurt on the battlefield. But why would that be temporary? Well, I think it may not be, but it could be. And the other thing we've got to keep in mind, the fact that we have a temporary suspension of physician supervision does not mean that the physicians are not there and they're not directing and supervising, because it all gets down to the facility. Mm. And those supervising anesthesiologists, for example, have not all gone away because of this. So they're out there working, and we're out there working, and in some cases, we're working under a model of direction and supervision, even though CMS has temporarily suspended it. So uh, you make a very good point, Jeremy. And I think that hopefully it will continue, but don't ever, ever underestimate the power of our lobbyists, special interest groups, and the almighty dollar. Hmm. There you go. And, uh, Amen. And that, that's, where, uh, that, that's where what it'll all come down yes, to. Yes, it will. Right has nothing to do with it. Nope. It's where the never. power and the money is. Cha-ching. It yeah. never does. Yep. And, you know, whenever I talk to legislators and I tell the story about CRNAs being on the front line, how I get my point across to them is I say they can do something one day and then they cross over an imaginary line, which is a state line, the next day when they come home and they can't do the same thing. Or it's like you used to tell us whenever we were in school, your IQ changes during the course of the day. At seven o'clock, you've got to have help doing something. At three o'clock, your IQ goes goes up because what you couldn't do at 7 a.m. you can now do by yourself at 3 p.m. but then at midnight you become a genius and on weekends and holidays that's exactly (laughs) right Mm -hmm. so hopefully that that can be the argument going forward and I know that's not a yell argument but you've got to remember that the people that you're talking to sometimes are chicken farmers and you've got to tell them in a way that they can understand and you know my IQ doesn't drop that the day that an executive order goes away let's just say theoretically it's May 30th and now everything's going to go back my IQ doesn't change from May 30th to June 1st. I could still do it. So hopefully that message will get across. Yeah, I hope so. Uh, Well, I think as usual, you know, to the lay person out there, and I include myself in this because I don't give anesthesia and I'm not a CRNA and I don't know what you guys know, this issue really is as clear as mud. Yeah. I mean, it's, it seems to get muddier and muddier and muddier. And, you know, that seems to be a tactic in my mind. The muddier we can make this issue, the less change gets done. Yes, you're probably right. Ooh. So. And uh, Sharon, I just came across, uh, by the way, the reference for that current review article. It was published in 1989, the year I was ANA president by Macaulay. 
uh, mm-hmm. Barbara McCauley, I think, is a CRNA and an attorney. And the title of it was Supervision, the Bane of the Nurse Anesthetist. Mm. And so not much has changed. It's still a very good uh, little article. I just happened for some reason to keep that one. Nice. Well, does 89 seem that long ago? It's over 30 oh, years. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> over 30 years, yeah, uh, since I was president of the INA. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Well, Sandy, as always, thank you for this. Uh, you know, I think this is a, a great topic that not even just our younger listeners, I think everyone enjoys hearing these topics, especially from you, because you've lived it and you've been through it, and you have given us a lot of knowledge here today. So thank you. Thank you. It's good to be here. Well, Sharon, I think we'll wrap it up. I believe so. It's another good one for the historical series, to be sure. Absolutely. We want to thank our listeners for listening to Beyond the Mask with Jeremy Stanley and... Sharon Pierce. If you like our show and want to know more, check out our other episodes on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review, but only if it's... Positive. There's enough negativity out there. Give us some good vibes. Make us feel the love. Until next time. It's a wrap. Today's show was made possible by the folks at CRNA Financial Planning, an independent consulting firm that offers financial planning services exclusively to CRNAs and their families. From planning for a child's future college expenses to building a predictable income stream in retirement, the firm is committed to offering you comprehensive financial services, customized to fit your unique needs and objectives. If you have questions about your financial future, get them answered. Call the team at 855-304-3748. That's 855-304-3748. Or go online to crnafinancialplanning.com. And thanks for your support of Beyond the Mask. Hi, this is Jackie Rolls, president of the International Federation of Nurse Anesthetists and president and founder of Our Hearts, Your Hands, a global anesthesia support community that takes donations to allow nurse anesthetists in low and middle income countries to go to educational programs, buy equipment or textbooks. Your donations are tax deductible and we would appreciate your support. OSA EMR is a free anesthesia EMR developed by CRNAs that you can download and use on an iPad. Our nonprofit mission is to make sure that solo and small practice CRNAs can digitally record their anesthetics. To learn more, visit OSAEMR.com to download and consider donating to our cause. Remember, for CRNAs, data is destiny. Like what you're hearing? Be sure to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and anywhere you like to listen to shows. Also, be sure to check out beyondthemaskpodcast.com. Each episode is posted there with a corresponding blog post, and we timestamp important parts of the episode to help you quickly get to the content you're looking for. Also, check out the special series section on the site. You can follow along and catch up on the CRNA History Series, episodes specifically about political conversations in the industry, or try the CRNA Personal Finance Series. It's all on beyondthemaskpodcast.com. And if you have a question for the show or want to be a guest or even suggest a particular topic, fill out the contact form on the site or send an email directly to us at info at beyondthemaskpodcast.com. And lastly, let's take the conversation social. Check out our Beyond the Mask podcast Facebook page and Facebook group.